0: Today on Cornerstone connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick
1: is calling your every Is it more scripturally consistent to say that I found Jesus or Jesus found me? Jesus found me. I was dead in my transgressions and sin. I wasn't even looking for Jesus. And he pursued me. That's the end of Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Follow me is actually in the Hebrew, a military term that means to pursue. This
0: is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through James. The phrase, I found Jesus, is very familiar if you've been in the church for any length of time. It's often heard in personal testimonies and even has been used in numerous Christian songs. While it's relatively harmless, it represents a misunderstanding of how our relationship with Christ works. As Pastor Gary explains in today's message, Jesus is the one who found us. He went to greater lengths than we could imagine to secure our redemption and bring us into intimacy with Himself. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of James, chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: This is the very thing that James is telling us to be about hear the Word of God, and apply it to your lives. Do what it says, and you'll be blessed for it. Now, back here in chapter 1 of James, verse 26, he says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue... So, again, there are different places where James talks about speech, and he, and he talks about, you know, bridling the tongue. Here's one example of it, like a horse's bridle. You know, we've got to rein it in. Uh, and again, I quoted this last week, but Psalm 141, verse 3 where David says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Amen. And James is going to spend a whole nother part of chapter three talking about the tongue. So he's not done here. But it's interesting because he says, listen, you can have all this God speak all you want, but if you don't tame the tongue, he says, if you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart and one's religion is useless. So don't Don't mess up your testimony by the way you talk, right? Don't. And by the way, it's not just verbal communication these days. It's all kinds of ways that people communicate. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I've had people say to me, listen, they've shown me people's social media. And they're like, how come this person says that they're a Christian, but yet look at their social media. It's another form of speech. It's another form of communication. Be very careful what you put out there. Because if it's inconsistent with what you say you believe, then you have just uh, basically tainted your testimony by speech that is inconsistent with what you believe. And this is this, it should go hand in hand. A lot of what James is going to teach us here is this. If you're really a Christian, it should be obvious by the way that you act, by the deeds that you do, by the way that you talk, uh, by, by, by the way that you uh, love other people, there will be evidence to your faith by the way that you act and behave. And speech is just one part of it that he's touching on throughout the whole uh, book of James here. But he says, don't, don't deceive Yourselves, And don't make your religion useless by an unbridled tongue. Reign it in and guard your speech like you guard anything else in your life. And then he adds here in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. And he talks about orphans and widows. And he says to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And there's a special place in the heart of God for orphans and widows. And there should be a special place in our heart, too. In Psalm 68, verse 5, it says, A father to the fatherless and a defender of widows in, is God in His holy habitation. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His in His holy habitation. Several years ago, I, I joined a group from our church. We went down to Honduras on a mission trip, and one of the places we stopped was an orphanage. You know, we spent time with the kids, and you know, just loving on them and playing with them. And and then when we left, we weren't told this going into it probably because they knew our emotional reaction would be different, and they just wanted us to act normal and to be around all these kids. But after we left the orphanage, we were told that every single one of those kids had AIDS, had HIV. Every single one was HIV positive. Asymptomatic, but HIV positive. And it was just crushing. I'm glad they told us after and not ahead of time, because, you know, barring a miracle, all those kids in, in a matter of a few years may likely die. Man, God has a special place in his heart for orphans. And God bless those of you who have opened your hearts and your homes uh, to orphans and uh, adopted people who, uh, children who didn't have a mom or a dad. Um, Of course, everybody has a biological mom or dad, but, you know, biology doesn't necessarily make a mother. And biology doesn't necessarily make a father. It's, It's a heart that makes a mom or a dad. And, um, And God has a special place in his heart for orphans and for widows. Don't forget the elderly. And not every widow is necessarily elder either. Obviously, you can be widowed at any time in life. And we have to remember those who are alone. Orphans and widows are alone. And God is a father of the fathers and a defender of widows. And we need to have a special place in our hearts for them as well. And to show it. Because this is all part of just putting our faith into action. So he ends chapter 1 here on that note, and then into chapter 2, James is going to cover two great themes. The first is, don't show favoritism. The second is, do put faith into action. That's really what chapter 2 says is all about. So let me, let me read a little bit here from chapter 2, starting at verse 1 down through verse 9, then we'll come back and start looking at these two great subjects here. But he says in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Circle that word. Some of your translations will say favoritism. For there, For if there should come into your assembly... And by the way, that word assembly in the original Greek is synagogue. So it's interesting because James is written to Jewish believers scattered throughout Asia Minor. So we have here an indication of how a synagogue was not exclusive to Jews alone. These are also Jewish believers who are occupying the synagogue. So he says, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, he says, my my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored The poor man, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Uh, Do they not blaspheme uh, that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. All right, so we'll pause there, because this first thing that he's dealing with here is favoritism, and uh, he's pointing out the fact that, hey, uh, even in the church, unfortunately, Christians can be guilty of showing favoritism. And he starts out here in verse 1 by saying, don't. Don't show favoritism. Again, New King James and ESV and King James uses the word partiality, but that's what he's talking about. Don't show favoritism. And we can tend to get impressed uh, by people based on um, what they're wearing or what they're driving or how many letters are after their name, um, um, how, how, how good-looking they are. I, I was reading an interesting study. Uh, it was a book actually written by Daniel Hammer, Hammermesh called Beauty Pays, Why Attractive People Are More Successful. And this just speaks to the fact of how people show favoritism because according to the study, listen to this, studies show Attractive students get more attention and higher evaluations from their teachers. Good-looking patients get more personalized care from their doctors. Handsome criminals receive lighter sentences than less attractive criminals. And good-looking people make 11 to 15% more than unattractive people. Isn't this amazing? I mean, how do you think I got this gig? But anyway... (laughs) not true. But I'm just pointing out, according to these studies, that we can have certain prejudices and biases towards the way people look and how they're dressed. This is the kind of thing that James was talking about. He says, he says you know, consider this. Somebody walks into the fellowship, they're really, you know, they're dressed to the nines, and you give them a special seat, but somebody else who hasn't bathed in a week, they look homeless, and, and you, you're going to put them in some, you know, corner of, of the sanctuary. I mean, how... How ungodly is that treatment of, of people? And so he says, don't do that kind of thing. Don't show favoritism. Don't show partiality here. And he, he says that it's a sin. He, he says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, great, you do well. And he's quoting from, from the Old Testament law, Leviticus nineteen eighteen, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus, by the way, raised that standard in John's gospel when he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we are to love one another as he has loved us, not just love one another as we love ourselves. Under the old covenant, self was the highest standard. Under the new covenant, God is the highest standard. I mean, he's always the highest, but it was reduced in the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant standard to m- mankind and how he can work his way, you know, and how, and how his um, deeds of righteousness can uh, prove his faith. But in the New Testament, you come to the New Testament, you're like, okay, Jesus is like, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But James goes on here to say, if you show partiality, Notice that in verse in verse eight uh, uh, rather verse nine he says, "You commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. There are three reasons why favoritism is a sin for you note takers here's the first one number one it is inconsistent with god 's nature he says there again in verse uh, One, he says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. You see, God doesn't show favoritism. It is contrary to his nature. So when we do it, we are acting in opposition to the character and nature of our Lord. In fact, in Romans 2.11, Paul simply says, God does not show favoritism. And there's this occasion in Acts chapter 10, remember when Peter had to get beyond his own bias as a Jew towards Gentiles by being obedient to the Lord and going to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and preaching the gospel. Peter goes albeit somewhat reluctantly, but he goes because he's a kosher Jew. He doesn't go into the home of a Gentile. So God tells him, I want you to go. He shares the good news of the message of, of Christ. He preaches the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Cornelius and his whole family get saved. And then Peter will testify in Acts 10 verses 34 and 35. Then he begins to say, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from all nations who fear God and do what is right. So Peter comes to this realization. He, he had been ingrained with the idea that as a Jew, he, was, he had special status with God. And in the sense of the plan of redemption coming through a Jewish Messiah, through a Jewish race, yes, but not in the sense that the Jewish people were the only people who could be redeemed, that Jesus Christ came for all, to die for all, as many as would turn to him to be saved. And so Peter had to actually work through some of his own bias, some of his own prejudice towards Gentiles. And when he sees Cornelius and his family get saved, first Gentile converts in the New Testament, he says, I now realize God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from all nations who fear him, and do what is right. And so if we show favoritism, it is inconsistent with God's nature. The second thing is, it is inconsiderate of others, themselves. In verses 3 and 4 here of of James 2, he says, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges... Where does prejudice come from? Pre-judging. You've judged someone, you've shown prejudice with evil thoughts. That's the word that's used there in verse 4. He says, this is actually evil. This is evil. And this is inconsiderate of others. Favoritism only shows not only how we pander to people, but it also reveals hidden discrimination against others. This is why it's wrong. There was a study done by Cornell University published in the Journal of Marriage and Family that found that siblings, just think about favoritism within a household, siblings who sensed that a parent consistently favored or rejected one child over others were more likely to show depressive symptoms as middle-aged adults. You as a kid feel like mom or dad loved sibling a lot more, it was obvious, it wasn't just perceived, it was real, it was obvious. Those people who felt rejected because of the favoritism shown towards another sibling, in general tended to grow up and have depressive symptoms, even in adulthood. The discrimination and rejection that comes at the other end of favoritism can be damaging. The root of discrimination is pride. It's the sense that you or someone else is better than another. And it is inconsiderate of other people. And then thirdly, it is incompatible with the law of love. This is what he says here in verses 8 and 9. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so what he's saying here is, Basically, God's not impressed with somebody's net worth. God's not impressed with the way that somebody dresses. God's not impressed with their education or their appearance. None of that matters to God. God evaluates a person's worth purely on the basis of the equal value that he has attached to every life. And how much is that of inestimable worth? God has attached equal value of inestimable worth unto every human being. Because he didn't die for a select few. He died for all because God so loved a select few. No, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that's the way we need to see each other. As having inestimable worth in the eyes of God. So much so that God was willing to die for every single human being. There are two little tiny parables back-to-back in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, one is the parable of the hidden treasure, and one is the parable of the pearl of great price. And I'm going gonna—it's only two verses. Each, each parable is one verse. I'm going to read these two verses to you, and I, and I want to put what I think is um, a different slant on, on the way these parables are commonly taught. So this is what it says out of Matthew 13, 44 to 46. Again, the kingdom of God, Jesus speaking here, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, that's the first parable. That's the parable of the hidden treasure. And then the parable of the pearl of great price, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. Now I will tell you, the majority of the ways that those parables are taught is this, that the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price is Jesus, and that we need to find him and then give up everything we have to get him. That's the way that those two parables are commonly taught and how Jesus is the treasure in the field and Jesus is the pearl of great price. And there are songs written about this. Um, I just don't think that that's the right interpretation. You're free to interpret it that way and you're free to be wrong. But I think that there's a different way, and I'm going to give you the biblical basis for it. First, is it more scripturally consistent to say That I found Jesus, or Jesus found me. Jesus found me. I was dead in my transgressions and sin. I wasn't even looking for Jesus. And he pursued me. That's the end of Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Follow me is actually in the Hebrew a military term that means to pursue. God's mercy pursues us to the end of the earth. Because God goes after us. Because God is the pursuer. He is the initiator. He is the one who goes after us. We are the responders. I was lost, but now am found. All right? So Jesus is the one, okay, who finds us. I didn't find him. The other thing that's important to recognize in those two parables that is similar is that in both cases... Somebody, whether it was the one who stumbled upon the treasure in the field, or whether it was the merchant who comes across this pearl, forfeits everything that they have to purchase this thing of great worth. Okay, now, seriously, what did you have to give up to get Jesus? What did you get? Compared to what He gave up for you by dying on a cross, by shedding His blood to purchase you from sin and death, to purchase me from sin and death. He's the one who gave up everything to come after us. Okay? In comparison to what He has done for me, I've given up nothing. I've given up nothing. So, I believe, again, different commentaries are going to disagree with me on this, but I believe that Jesus is teaching those parables to help us to understand the value that you are in his eyes and that though there is nothing within ourselves that is righteous yet he loved us so much because he sees the inestimable worth of your life that you were worth dying for and thus You are that treasure hidden in the field and you are that pearl of great price that Jesus shed his blood to purchase so that you might understand your worth and your value in the eyes of the Savior who died on a cross to purchase you and me from sin and death. You are that treasure in the field. You are that pearl of great price. That is taking nothing away from Christ, okay? That is not in any way to diminish the value of Christ, all right? It is simply to say, Who was the one that really purchased whom? Who was the one who really found whom? And in those parables, I think it's him saying to us, you are worth dying for. I gave my life. God in heaven saying, I sacrificed my son to go after you, that we might be redeemed as the treasure that he pursued to win us, to buy us, to gain us for himself.
0: your connection, run towards your new life Following Jesus isn't a one-time decision It's a daily choice to put your desires aside and seek your Savior for His opinion It's determining that your actions are going to reflect what you believe today It's every morning giving your heart back to God because it can't be about you The book of James is helpful in that it gives you practical advice on how to do this every day, how to be the hands and feet of Jesus to everyone you meet. We're so glad you took time today to study this New Testament letter with us. If you missed any part of this broadcast or would like to explore more of Pastor Gary's teachings, we invite you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also download our mobile app to connect with Scripture whenever and wherever you are. How could we be lifting you up in prayer during this study? Please let us know. We love that we can interact with our listeners, and we feel honored to be able to pray for your requests. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. Again, our number is 703-771-1500. We'd love to have you come join us for our weekly gatherings at Cornerstone Chapel. You'll find all the information you need on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go so you know